You are listening to the Reality Steve podcast with your host, Reality Steve. He's got all the latest info and behind the scenes juice on Colton's upcoming season of The Bachelor and interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. Now, here's Reality Steve. Welcome to podcast number 105. I'm your host, Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. We're a day early on this one. After last week was a day late, but also because tomorrow is Thanksgiving. I don't expect a lot of you to be listening to podcasts on Thanksgiving Day, so I figured I'd give it to you a little bit early. And this is a fun one. Honestly, it's one of the more fun interviews that I've ever done. Granted, it is with a person that I know, uh, a friend of mine. And you saw him on the real world years ago, almost 17 years ago, but he's made quite a name for himself. His resume is unparalleled. It's something I really wanted to get into with him, the stuff that he has done over the years and to where he is now. Um, Kyle Brandt from the real world Chicago. They were the season that was filming when 9-11 happened. He explains how that all went down because it was a little bit different uh, than I thought. And I, I don't know if it's a story that any of you have ever heard. But obviously, as you know, you go on reality TV, you have no access to phones, you have no access to television. They don't let you do that. But 9-11 happens during the middle of your filming. What do you do if you're the real world? He explains everything that went down. And it's just, I'll say this for Kyle. What you hear in this interview today and how you hear him come across like that's how he is in real life this guy is full of energy I I can tell why the NFL Network wanted him as bad as they did gave him his own spinoff show it's on every Friday night now you can check it out it's called Kyle Brandt's football experience we go over all that stuff but truly one of the good guys in the industry one of the best guys that I've ever had the pleasure to deal with in the sporting world and I did it for a long time Back right out of college and about nine years after college, I was in the sports radio business. There's a lot of self-absorbed jerk-offs in that industry. This guy is not one of them, and I, I, I really hope you enjoy listening to him. He's got great stories. He's funny. He's witty. Tons. Uh, the, the best part about Kyle is we grew up around the same time, and we both like the same things pop culture-wise, and I think you're going to enjoy that if you're a big pop culture fan because he makes a lot of references during this interview, uh, we got Karate Kid in there, Beverly Hills 90210. Uh, there's a few others, but um, I hope you enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. Good news this week no sponsors whatsoever. So you're not going to hear any breaks. It's going to go straight through. It's about an hour long. And But if you do want to be a part of the He Said, She Said podcast, uh, first off, check out episode 10, which was released yesterday. Two interesting calls and this idea of the money dance at weddings. Ashley had never heard of it. I've been to three or four that had them. I put the poll out yesterday on Twitter, and it's kind of right around 52%, 48% had either been to a wedding or their wedding included one. And Ashley is like flabbergasted. She had ne- she's had she been to 30-plus weddings and had never even heard of what the money dance was or the dollar dance, whatever you want to call it, where guests line up to dance with the bride, and they either pin a dollar on her or put it in her little clutch that she's wearing or give it to the maid of honor who's standing to the side I, I thought it was like norm and 
maybe it's kind of a dying breed now. We had one um, wedding planner who told me and emailed us or uh, or Twitter mentioned us and said, I'm a wedding planner and it's definitely still a thing, but maybe 25% of the weddings that she does include a money dance slash dollar dance. So uh, that kind of took over <laughs> yesterday on Twitter. People chiming in about what it was. Some people are like, oh, yeah, every wedding I go to has that. And some people are like, I've never heard of it either. I'm on Ashley's side. So it's crazy. Anyway, check that out, episode 10. If you want to be a part of a future episode, just contact myself or Ashley. Let us know what times on your end and the best times you can record, and we'll go from there. And as always, please rate, subscribe, and review in Apple Podcasts. It's much appreciated. It certainly helps with the podcast. But uh, without any further ado, let's get to it. Podcast number 105, you're really going to enjoy Kyle Brandt. If you've never seen him or never heard of him, I suggest you still listen because he's a funny guy, witty guy, and I just love the guy's energy. And uh, I can't wait for you all to hear it. So here it is, podcast number 105. Okay, let's uh, welcome in our guest. Uh, If I covered his whole resume, it might be a five-minute intro. But uh, let's see. You first saw him on your television screens during season 11 of The Real World in Chicago. He went on to star in Days of Our Lives for three years. Now you can see him every morning on the NFL Network as one of the hosts for Good Morning Football. He's also got his own show now, Friday nights on the NFL Network, called Kyle Brandt's Football Experience. Kyle Brandt. Kyle, what's up? Listen, uh, you can say what you want about my resume. It does not include getting served by ABC attorneys. Yeah. So what, what does, what, who cares what else it has? That's I, the real gem of the resume. I, the best part about this right now is you are so big time. The fact that you are currently doing this interview as a car service is driving you from work <laughs> to home. Dude, you are so bougie right now. It's unbelievable. That's what my niece What says. I didn't tell you is that – and this is why we couldn't do this on video – I'm actually, uh, it's, I'm actually, it's a limo that has one of those jacuzzis in the back. I'm actually in the jacuzzi right now, like like uh, Vince Neil and Nikki Six in the '80s, and I have champagne, and I'm not alone. So it's not even you can't even begin to imagine how bougie it is, Steve. Yeah, I know this is awesome. Um, but I know, I know you're someone who's not gonna uh, forget where you came from. So it's all good. Uh, I'm trying, yeah. but yeah, you can't. With where I came from, as I'm sure we'll get into, there's no forgetting. Yeah. It's all permanent. Um, all right, let's start with Real World Chicago right. because that was kind of obviously your first foray into anything having to do with television. And it was a memorable season because you guys were filming when 9-11 happened. And it's the first yeah. time I can really remember a reality TV show breaking that proverbial fourth wall. I, I don't think we ever really saw it before that. But before we get to that, just fill everyone in on how you went from being – you were a football player at Princeton University – and then you ended up as a cast member on The Real World. Please yeah. explain how the hell that happened. Okay, senior year in college, uh, Princeton, New Jersey. I, I had always, the, all, for all of college, I'd done football and I'd done theaters and plays. I wanted to be an actor. Like, I was just, I had the dream and I wanted to do all that. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. And senior year, as a lot of my, my teammates and uh, classmates were starting to get jobs with Morgan Stanley and Lehman Brothers and all these incredible things and signing signing bonuses as 22 year old college seniors i didn't even know that was a thing you know like they were uh, brady anderson or something i didn't like signing bonuses for like six figures i was damn what am i gonna do so i guess i'm just gonna move out to la and i just try it and then just lo and behold out of nowhere uh buna murray productions who's done real world from the beginning came and did an open call on campus they just chose princeton university as a place to do one of the open calls i didn't you know, see uh, an address at the end of a real world episode and send a tape. They came to us 
And second semester seniors don't usually have a lot to do. So my friends and I, who were huge fans of the show, because who wasn't in 2001, and had watched it in our dorms for years, in our homes, in our apartments, decided to get loaded and be like, let's go to the real world trial. This will be hilarious. And we waited in line, and we went to it, and they liked me, and they called me back, and called me back, and called me back. And then eventually I got cast in my hometown of Chicago, where I was born and raised, and then I was there july 11th uh 2001 to start the real world how soon after you got cast did you know that that season was taking place in chicago or did you already know the second you started talking to them i I think they said it during casting which was just an incredible you know if you believe in that type of stuff and you're supposed to be on and the signs are pointing to which i don't but um it was just kind of a cool thing like what because i think the ones i had watched were so i was really into seattle Mm -hmm. um the Seattle season, I mean, I, the first episode that really blew my mind of Real World was the classic Stephen and Irene, the slap and the throw the teddy bear into the water and all. I mean, that, I, I remember seeing that and that was that was the moment for me that like I, I imagine now from like a young person seeing like the first mind blowing YouTube video they ever see. That was me with Stephen slapping Irene and, and all that. that. That really did it for me. So the Seattle season was big. And then I think New Orleans came around and then it was. And then it was me up. So the Chicago thing was just totally a coincidence, but it made it cool because I kind of felt like I was in a way like the the host of the cast in a way. Yeah, it was so long ago, man. I know. I mean, just the fact that that was 17 years ago that you were on that show. And obviously I watched it um, and then the 9-11 thing happened and you guys Mm -hmm. are part of it. How exactly? I don't remember it, but yeah, refresh my memory. How exactly did it all play out? Were you told by producers? hey, this is what's going on. We're going to let you watch television coverage of it. How did it play out? Really weird and really strange um, the way things lined up. So it's a four-month shoot, yeah. and you're in production 24 hours a day. There's no breaks, with the one exception that for two days in the middle of the four months, like the 50-yard line of the experience, they had set aside to turn off the cameras and do publicity and photo shoots and all those things. So it was um, September 10th and September 11th. They Holy said, shit. guys, production stops and we're going to do just take we're going to go around the city doing photo shoots that we'll use and promotional stuff and magazines or whatever. So on 9-11-2001, they got us up and it was me and the two other guys in the cast, Chris and Theo. And they were bringing everybody to all these amazing sites around Chicago, like, you know, the Buckingham Fountain or the, the Art Institute. And they brought us to Wrigley Field and we get there really really early in the morning and they led us into an, an empty Wrigley field. It was, there was nothing going on hmm. and we are just standing there. And this is a childhood dream for me. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. Wrigley field is, is my Vatican. You know I mean? It's the place. And we got to go and just walk amongst the field and do whatever we wanted. Totally empty. So it was already kind of dreamlike in a sense that I'm like, this is, this is the strangest, most bizarre dream. I'm having this dream that I'm in Wrigley walking around with cameras. And then all of a sudden camera people who it was a New York based crew they started getting phone calls and they started, you know, running and they, and some of the people started crying and, and everyone was like, what the hell is going on? And our executive producer, this guy named Anthony Dominici sat down and said, there's been an incident in New York. And he's like, you know, a plane flew into a building. I'm like, you know, what the hell is that? And, and then like everybody else, we went through the same experience in the sense that the, the other plane hit and it was terror and it was horrible and it was just very emotional. And so it's kind of weird if you look through the lens of reality, Steve, because if it had just happened in a normal Wednesday in the real world when we're sitting there at confessional and deciding where we're going to go out to dinner 
it would have all played out our reactions naturally to seeing and hearing about 9-11. It just happened to land in this one little oasis in the middle where we weren't being filmed. So eventually then we went home, they sat down with us and told us what's going on. And, you know, was, I, I had a sister in lower Manhattan. We all knew somebody. I was very upset by it. Yeah. But they said, here's the deal. Uh, we're going to bring in a TV and there's no TVs in the real world house. At least there weren't then. There's no TVs, no phones. And they dragged in this. I mean, it was this tiny, like 12 inch Magnavox TV that they had in the production booth. And we just sat there like everybody else did for hours, just watching it. And then eventually they said, now, listen, we're going to start filming. We have an obligation to capture what's going on here. And you guys, we're going to start filming again. So they didn't pick up our reactions to 9-11. I mean, it had to be six or seven hours after the whole thing happened. Um, and then it was just off and running. And after that, it was so it was a weird experience. For, I mean, it was a terrible experience for everybody. But for us and for me, it was this added this added like double weirdness of like also being on, in the fishbowl while it was happening. Oh, I can imagine. And I remember when they did play it back, we we as the audience had to pretend that we were we were seeing you guys watch it and it made it seem like it was the first time you guys were seeing it or did they how did they do it when they actually showed it to us? I, I think they might have made it seem like it was the first time. Yeah. I don't remember. I I have not seen the episodes, you know, since whatever it was 16 years. What I, what I remember is so that when they air 6 months later, you know, the, the episode beforehand was airing and then there's always the teaser for next week. And it was like next week on the real world. And there's like a shot of the trade center and it's us crying. And then I remember Theo, who was so young at the time, there's a shot of him in the confessional and he goes, terrorism, man, that's the real world. And I was like, wow, <laughs> either incredibly hacky and lame or just really powerful. Yeah. But at the time, it, it blew my mind. No, I can imagine. Gosh, that's. That's so bizarre. I mean, just the fact that we all yeah, dude, remember nice. that day where we were that day when it happened. I mean, I was in L.A. Sports Talk Radio at the time. I was working for AM 1150 in L.A., and yeah. I wasn't at the station yet, but I woke up to, you know, seeing what was going on, and everybody at the station was like, everyone get in here now. I was getting calls from people over there, and yeah, I mean, it was it was. See, Steve, I, I figured day. we'd be talking about, you know, who was doing the triple kiss in the jacuzzi, and what's it like being in the love I mean, Here we are talking about, you know, the Twin Towers and what we went through. This thing got heavy real fast, I, reality, Steve. I, I know. Like, I, 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 could, I couldn't help it. I had to, I had to go there. I'm all right I, with it. That's fine. Whatever. Um, we'll, we'll get to Pavelka. Don't worry. I know your obsession with, <laughs> with him. Um, okay, so after, after Real World, yeah. Um you you moved to LA to do the acting thing. Like you and yeah. like a thousand million other people that want to do the acting thing. Yep. You moved to yep. LA and you got the Days of Our Lives gig after numerous audition calls. Explain yeah. how that one came to be. All right, I'm going this is wheelhouse for you, dude. So picture um I show up in LA and if for all of your listeners who are into reality shows and who, and who isn't, this you'll you'll love this. This is catnip. I show up to L.A., and it is January of 2002. So if you think about that, this is really right there in the heart of the reality explosion. Like the, yeah. the, the It was two seasons in of Survivor. We had already done the Richard Hatch season and then like the Colby Donaldson down under season. Yeah. And everything was just going crazy for reality. So I vividly remember 
going into auditions and I had this chip on my shoulder about, you know, don't call me a reality star. I, I, I've done you know, Shakespeare, which is bullshit. I was a reality star. And I would go in, I would sit and I was, I was very earnest about it. And I would, I would, be, I was sitting there in audition rooms, like the waiting rooms going and do my read for whatever terrible CBS sitcom allowed three lines at the time. And it was, and I remember I looked up and like across the, the room, there was, um, the bachelor was there like one it was like the maybe it was the first ever that was the first ever bachelor he was there in the room and amongst the other guys one of the dudes from temptation island was in the room and i recognized that because i watched him and i'm like this is kind of funny this is kind of crazy that whatever but i was kind of pissed about it and then as they say uh kyle uh we're ready for you the door opens and the guy who walks out who was auditioning for the part before me was joe millionaire Oh. That dude, Evan Marriott. Remember Evan Marriott? Oh, of course. That's how Reality Scene got started. I recapped Joe Millionaire. That was the first All thing right. that I started to do. Yeah. Then you know. So Joe Millionaire walks out with that, you know, that big head of curly hair and he's big dude. And like, I'm sure he just crushed his audition. And so I'm like, God, this is crazy. What am I doing in here? Because I, I knew I was trying to aspire to be better, but at that point I wasn't. You know what? I didn't get the part, neither did Joe Millionaire, the Temptation Island guy. But it was it was everywhere in Hollywood. It was being overtaken by reality stars. So when then so you get chosen, I mean, soap opera is a big deal to a niche audience. A very big deal yeah. to a niche audience. So how did the Days of Our Lives gig happen? Like how did you win out over probably numerous other people who have been dying for years to get on a on a soap opera or even came from another soap opera and here's a guy whose acting experience was real world for 20 episodes or whatever and some college plays i, I just wore the tightest t-shirts of the audition dude. that's all you have to do that's the secret i really mean it i auditioned for a year for everything you, you can you name it remember my first ever audition was for the tv reboot of uh, legally blonde the reese witherspoon movie i didn't get any of that didn't get it didn't get it um, and in the same week in 2003, I was cast in a right guard commercial with Randy Johnson, the pitcher, yeah. and Jim Brewer, a uh, dodgeball commercial. And then I got the Days of Our Lives job. And I'm not even kidding. What they do for soap operas, at least they used to, is they get down to about six finalists. And it's just like just six, you know, hunky D bags with tips in their hair. And you go in and you do the same scene. Each, each six of you do the same scene with one of the actresses who's already on the show. Like, already working same scene with them. they look at all six of them they pick you and i remember before i went to the audition my agent at the time this female said my best advice i can give you is wear something really tight i'm not kidding that's what they look for so i'm like fine so i i drive from my apartment which was on franklin and la brea oh. there was a banana republic right there on hollywood boulevard by the chinese theater and i went in and i found like the tiniest it was like baby clothes, man. It was like a lycra blue spandexy t-shirt, and I, I mean, I wore. It. You could see everything through it. Was, I, I, it would almost cut my circulation off, but I wore it because at the time I was in really good shape, and I, I think that's what they liked. I mean, my lines were terrible. I didn't even know what I was. I was one of those actresses like I don't know what to do with my hands while I'm talking. Yeah. <laughs> it's so bad, but hell, what I knew what to do with with that t-shirt, and that got me home, man. Yeah, and there you were for Philip Kiriakis for three that's years it. on Days of Our Lives, like. Now, here's the thing. I don't know. I don't I know about soap operas. I've never actively followed any one of them. But sure. my thing is. Because that show is those shows are all one, you know, continuous storyline of, you know, continuity. like how do they ever run repeats of 
soap operas. It seems like there's a new one on every single day. They don't run repeats ever. What is the schedule for shooting a soap opera? Yeah, not only is there no repeats, there's no hiatus. It's not like you yeah. know, <laughs> Game of Thrones goes away for a year and a half, or King of Queens is off for the so whatever the hell it is. It's just year round. It's year round, and then occasionally you know, they build up enough episodes that they've shot ahead of time where you get like a couple weeks that are dark. It's you know what? It's actually kind of the reason it was appealing, man. Is it's a good job. It's a regular job. You go to work at regular hours in the morning. You leave at regular hours, and you got your lines for the day. And really what's how you survive in that world is you have to be able to memorize lines really well. And I'm really good at that. Like I just I'm bad at a lot lot of things having to do with that job, but I can memorize lines. And I remember like my first day there, my acting was so bad and I didn't know where to look. And I was like I was like I think I was actually trembling on camera. But I remember I got through the scene and one of the camera guys who've been there for years and he was like, dude, you're going to be fine. You know how to memorize lines. That's all it takes to stay here. And I was like, fine, I got that because. You know, it just comes from like years of of memorizing Star Wars lines and things like that. I could remember and anything about Boba Fett, and I could remember about the amnesia and the, my evil twin, and I was it's simple. So that's all it is—a lot of lines. So I I deal with lunatic fans all the time in in Bachelor uh-huh. Nation, and there's lunatic fans, there's maniacal fans, and then there's soap opera fans, which are literally a different breed unto themselves, yeah. like. Explain to people the types of fans that you dealt with, because once your, um, I don't know, once your soap opera career was over, you know, I read that you basically, to earn money, were just going on these appearances, or maybe it was during, maybe it was during and after, where you would just go on appearances where you would just meet soap opera fans and you'd sign headshots and and then go out and hang out without hang out with them afterwards. And I'm sure it was mm-hmm. just like shooting fish in a barrel in terms of women. Yeah. Somebody explained it to me once. I thought it was insightful. They said, here's why soap opera fans are the way they are. Because if you look at um, like the biggest movie star in the world, whoever it may be, Leo. This is right now, if it's Leo or you know Matt Damon or Will Smith or whatever, they have, what, one, maybe two movies a year. You go and you see the movie and you're there and that's great. And then you see a couple next year. That's it. If you have a major, major um, TV star, like wh- whoever it may be, when it was Don Draper or Tony Soprano, whatever, you see them, I don't know, a dozen times a year. Maybe if it's a sitcom, 20, 30 times a year, that's it. And they're like, do you understand? Soap opera actors come into these people's homes for an hour a day 200 to 300 times a year it's like they become you spend an hour with them every part of your week so they become part of your family and so when they see you there's not always an obsession or infatuation there's like a familiarity where they like just kind of take liberties like we're family and it gets real weird because you spend so much time with them way more than they would any kind of rock star or movie star so they feel like they know you and also like maybe they're a little too entitled a little bit so most of the times it's friendly. Most of the times it's a little strange. I, that's a great analogy. And I got to believe that I, I'm I'm assuming that a lot of these people, not that they think the show is real, but when you did meet them at events and whatnot, did they say stuff to you thinking like, hey, I hated when Philip did this or like literally took your character too seriously? Did you get any of that? Hell yeah, because my character spent most of the time like trying to, to to divide what they call a soap power couple. Like when I was there, Sean and Belle were everything. And they had, 
you know, fan sites and the MySpace pages about Sean and Bell, Sean and Bell. And then Philip comes in and he falls in love with Bell. So whatever, that sounds like typical soap opera material. Yeah. But then you see these people in Paducah, Kentucky, and they come up and they'd say, you know, you got to stay away from Sean and Bell. I don't know what you're thinking. That ain't right. And I got a problem with you if you try to interfere with Sean and Bell. And I'm like, hey, you know, Daisy, I, listen, I, I, I'm glad you're watching, but I don't write the I don't write the words, man. I just I'm collecting a check. I, I would agree with you. I believe in uh, relationships and monogamy, but I, I gotta I gotta play the part here. They they got really offended. By, listen, those people are crazy sometimes. They're southern. You know, it's hot down there, and they come in and they get a nice hug. And for people who are fans of soaps, they are not always fan of soap. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's ironic in that way. And they they get in there and get they they wait in line, Steve, for 90 minutes sometimes. Sometimes they have to pay a fee. And baby, they're gonna get their money's worth. I was all, I was victimized many times by the, okay, we're gonna take a picture on three, one, two, and then at two and three quarters and seven eighths, they go in for the the, the cheek kiss for the camera, you know, and yeah. it's just like, and you just feel the beard just scrape by oh. you, and it's like, no, most of the people are really really nice. Sometimes they they were just a little much. <laughs> you know, you know what it reminds me of? Seriously, the the fan reaction is. And I know you'll appreciate this because you're a 90210 fan from back yeah. in the day. When Jamie Walters had his first run on 90210 when he played Ray Pruitt with one T because sure. they couldn't afford another one, he <laughs> was an up-and-coming pop star in real life. But because he was basically an alcoholic with an anger management problem who pushed Donna down the stairs in Palm Springs, he said in past interviews, like, playing that character torpedoed my career because yeah. people thought I was a bad guy in real life because I was playing this musician on 90210. I'm a musician in real life, but they thought I was a real jerk. And I don't know if people remember this. Maybe you do. Like two or three seasons later, they bring Ray Pruitt back to quote-unquote redeem himself. He's got a new girlfriend. Yeah, he apologizes yeah. to Donna, who's dating Joe Bradley at this point, the football quarterback at Cal CU. Like, sure. And it, was, and it was strictly done to try and revive this guy's career. And the guy's career was never the same. Like it never no. took off, and he was supposed to be a, a, a big deal. He had how do you talk to an angel, and that was that. No one, one hit wonder. Yeah, that, oh, that Walters. was the jam. Yeah, it reminds me. You must see this a lot in what you do, Steve. Like, wh what are your observations about when people go on The Bachelor or they go on the reality show, and then like the show's over, and they just so badly want to keep the party going, like. <laughs> They can't go back to corporate real estate because I've seen this with my own eyes, too. And it's a really intoxicating thing. And they don't you know, that's why you get the Bachelor in Paradise. And that's how you get all these anything, you know, Instagram accounts, whatever. You must see this constantly because it's a thing now. Oh, it's nonstop. And I, I, I think now because social media has taken over this show, it's the reason people are going on the show. It's either a to get on Bachelor in Paradise or another possible show, because I don't think yep. Winter Games is coming back this year. So they, it's it's basically, look, I've got a 1 in 25 to 30 shot of actually ending up as the winner on this, so let me yeah. at least have a good showing on Bachelor or Bachelorette, but let me parlay that into either Bachelor in Paradise or an Instagram life where I can make money. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but these girls, it's mostly the women that have that are profiting yeah, sure. off that. You got 1.1 or 1.2 million followers and you make one post about, you know, flat tummy tea, you're getting paid yeah. 10 to 20 grand 
per post. And is that true? Oh yeah. I mean, as long as you have, as long as you're in the million followers and they're not bot followers, yeah, you're good to go. Ten to twenty grand for one post. And obviously, these women and men, they weren't making ten to twenty grand a month before they went on this show. And I think no, no way. I, and I, it's funny you bring that up, man. Cause I, I ravenously consume The Bachelor too. Yeah. And I love it for all its faults. In fact, I love it because of its faults. But it's become a thing now that I feel like. It, you kind of see the zipper running up the monster's back now because oh, yeah. to your point, there's, let's say there's, let's say there's 25 guys or whatever. And either they know they're not going to win this thing or they don't even like the girl, but they are one naked jump into the pool away from locking up a spot on bachelor in paradise and going on vacation and making out for a few weeks. It's yeah. either that or the one that I also hate. There's times when I'm screaming at the TV that these guys, typically it's the guys, are posturing. And so this is when they get down to maybe the final eight or something. They're so badly auditioning to be The Bachelor. It's it's like they're doing dramatic monologues and trying to cry. And I know it. I know they're not into her. They want the gig. And you know what? It works. Those yeah. guys get the gigs. No, I, I it's you, – you pretty much know, okay, if you last long enough on this show and you get enough of a following, you can do the Instagram thing, and if you make top four – you're automatically in the running for next Bachelor or Bachelorette because that's essentially where they choose it from. Every Bachelorette, they've had 14 Bachelorettes. Every woman who's been the Bachelorette finished in the top four of her season wow. on The Bachelor. Okay. They've never strayed outside the top four. For Bachelor, since they started this re- since they started the recycle, um, it's been every Bachelor outside of two were top four on their Bachelorette seasons. The only two were Juan Pablo and your boy Pavelka. Those are the only two that finished outside the top four that um, somehow became The Bachelor. I don't know why on Jillian's season they chose Jake out of all those. Yeah. They had Kipton. They had Reed. I know those guys were in negotiations. Whatever the case may be, but they went with Jake, who finished outside the top four, and then Juan Pablo. But everyone else, top four. Um, you know what's funny? Those are my two favorite bachelors of all time. Juan Pablo Jake and Jake? Jake? Those are my guys. <laughs> I mean, it's um, the, the, the problem I have with bachelors sometimes is – um, when they have, sometimes I, I'm, I'm frustrated that the guy who they choose is not a big enough jackass. Like he's just sort of a good guy. Yeah. And, and like, I don't, I don't really want a good guy. I need someone who either is an a-hole, which is fine. Or just like, I want a huge jackass like so that I can laugh at because I'm here for the entertainment, man. Like I'm not here for true love. So, yeah. you know, Jake was just such a fascinating watch because he seems so fake all the time and so insecure and then Juan Pablo, like if you ask me, is probably the goat bachelor in terms of like just full full. Con- it was so fun to watch, man. Oh, he so was fun. he was an absolute train wreck. Um, What's the, he up to, man? I never see him on any of these shows. I want more Juan Pablo. I know. I I, I thought I read that he got married. I think he ma- I think he got married to somebody like in the singing world, or maybe she was in the pageant world, like Miss Venezuela Perfect. or something. Like right. Up and they don't want to have a show somewhere. They don't have a show. <laughs> Come on, let's get a show going. I know. Like, there's so, oh, God. I mean, Bachelor stuff. I mean, the Pavelka stuff is funny because, you know, obviously we all remember Pavelka's just absolute meltdown on national television. You know, here's a guy that, and that guy went on to do a lot of, I mean, Dance with the Stars, Worst Cooks in America. Like, he got on a lot of reality shows after that, after literally embarrassing himself. As bad as you can embarrass yourself on television when you scream at your fiance or ex fiance at the time, like, 
you know, please stop interrupting me. Interrupting <laughs> me. You're undermining me. I mean, his that hand was, comes I, I up like he's about to the back. best moment in the history of the franchise. Oh. I, I think that that sit down with Harrison, yeah. Vienna, and Jake was the best moment they've ever had, ever. I was so riveted by it. I mean, you must have just been like foaming at the mouth for that. <laughs> That was the best thing ever. Oh, it was because I it was I mean obviously it was uncomfortable to watch cuz these were two people that literally hated each other now but had to be forced to sit in the backyard of the mansion and talk about where everything went wrong and who sold what story to what tabloid. But when he raises his voice and literally raises his arm like he's going to backhand her across the face like I know. I, I can't believe that guy ever got a gig after that. I, that I'm shocking. shocked. Yeah. I don't um, know if he would now. That was a handful oh of years ago. Yeah. You know, it's like, and, and also it speaks to this broader topic we're talking about because there's so many men. I almost have that scene memorized. Like, I there's one part, though, you know, where, and I love the part where Jake's like, you sold me out to a magazine. <laughs> it was just so bad. But I love the part where Vienna is calling him out and she's like, aren't you, I thought you were a pilot. Like, what are you doing? Like, and I'm like, that is a great point by her. Like he is a pilot. So what is he doing? Like trying to get a pilot, you know, like it made, and she totally called him out and it speaks to this thing about trying to stay the pseudo famous because he did. It was like, I watched it from afar through the tabloids and I've been there, man. I, he, he did. He was on the uh, Chippendales, and he'll show up at any red carpet. And then he was apparently sort of dating Kristen Chenoweth. And just oh, yeah. every type, every tool in the Swiss Army knife of staying famous, he played. And it it brings me back to real world because the way I relate, the way that that you would you might be interested in is what their vehicle for uh, Bachelor in Paradise is the challenge. Yeah. That is their Bachelor. In, that is your extension. You can keep the party going. And I just remember people always say, did you ever do the challenge? No. Would you ever? I finished this. I finished my season in November of 2001. They called me in December and said, would you be interested in doing the challenge? And I, for so many reasons, just said, no way. I'm not doing that. It was the four month shoot in real world was very stressful. Very. I was anxiety ridden. I lost a lot of weight. You're always worried about how you're going to come off. I just said, no, I'm not doing it. Plus, I earnestly did want to commit myself to doing something serious in L.A. So I just kept saying no. But I know a lot of people. I was even dating someone who, like, would be tempted to do those because it's just like, all right, I'm 23. And I can either try to apply for a pharmaceutical sales job, maybe, or I can just go down to Mexico again and put together six or seven months rents and try to win a Saturn and do a zip line. I think I'm just going to do that. And then when that's over... I'll do the next one. And the next thing you realize I'm 38 and like, I've just been doing this the whole time. And I've seen that. And I feel like if you don't get off it early, like it's easy to ride on it. Oh, for sure. And I think, I mean, we're seeing that now. I mean, whoever thought that the challenge would be as successful. I mean, it's outlasted real world. I mean, it looks like they're bringing real real world back on Facebook live, but it's not going to be the same show on Facebook live that it was back in the day when you were on it and we were all watching Hawaii and New Orleans and Chicago. Like yeah. it's just it's, we're never gonna see that now. Um, I, I want to talk about your wife story. You know, <laughs> I want to talk about your wife. Okay. Um, the story of how you guys met is pretty funny. Um, uh, Jeff Perlman did a piece on you, which was really good and in depth. And um, I think it was in between your off days of our lives, but you haven't started. Um, I don't think you had started working for Jim Rome yet. I don't. Yeah, know. when I met my wife, I was I was working for. Jim. Okay, so you were working for Jim at that time. Yeah. Um, but you met her on a dating site, you go out and she knows nothing about sports and she had no yeah. and she had no idea 
who you were, yet two years later you were married. She had never yeah. seen you on Days of Our Lives. Um, when you were on that first date with her, did you think, okay, she doesn't know anything about sports and she knows nothing about my background, this actually could work well for me? Or you're like, oh, shit, um, crap. Uh, <laughs> no, listen, this was – it was uh, – it was critical that my wife, Brooke, had never seen Real World, had never seen Days of Our Lives, any of that. Like, if she had ever seen that stuff, she would not have gone out with me. Brooke is just, she's very outside of the L.A. industry, even though she's from L.A. She's, she's an attorney. She's, uh, it's just not her thing. I think it's, it's a huge turnoff to her, which I totally understand. Like, if I was in her position, I would not want to date someone who was on the real world. Like, there's probably some sort of, like, exhibitionist asshole, you know? So yeah. she had never even heard of it, and then... As she tells the story, for whatever reason, we're at this we're at this dinner at this place called Castaways that's in Burbank, and we're sitting up there. And in her impression, she, she saw a few younger industry type people. I don't know, eyeing me or something. I don't know. And she says, "Like, what's going on? What, like, are you something? Are you someone?" And I'm like, "No, I used to be on a soap opera, and then I did the Real World." And like, again, if you're a business person who doesn't go in those waters at all, hearing of someone that you're on a date with was on the Real World is like. I don't know. Like, it's, it's not a good development. It's like yeah. basically like them saying, like, I have an STD or something like you're like, ah, well, I mean, it's not a necessarily the end of the day, but this is not positive. And so credit to her. And thank God I had a real job like working in media at the time. Otherwise, we would not be married. Yeah. Well, that job was was working for Jim Rome. You and I, uh, people that listen to this podcast know that I worked for Jim right out of college for two years. I was gone long before you joined the show and you and I have been in touch over the years when you worked for Jim and I was calling yeah. this smack off and, you know, once a year. And by the way, I got jobbed this year. I think, uh, you know, how, how do you, <laughs> how do you bring the Kavlin Asian on after 11 year absence and, and not win just because, uh, you know, Brad puts some shirtless pictures on, you know, whatever, whatever. <laughs> I'll take second place. Um, I, I, you know, so I was going to 99. When did you work for, when did you get hired by Jim? I got hired for Jim. December of 2007. Oh, geez. So you were way after me. Gee, I yeah, guess it was, I guess it was Jason that got, was, he was like maybe Oh one or Oh two. Oh yeah. He goes way back years before me. He oh. probably was the guy, but I didn't come into Oh seven. Okay. So you came in in Oh seven and, but at the time, like, so when days ended and you got hired by Jim, what was the lag time there? What was the, how long were you? Um, not- like a good, like a, over a year, like I would say, months the the deal is my days of our lives contract was up i had done three and a half years on that and like every person ever on a soap opera you're convinced that that's going to be your launching pad your stepping stone and you read all the stories about how everyone from sarah michelle geller to denzel washington to so-and-so started in soaps and went on to become massive stars um and you're all convinced you're going to do that so for me in 2006 uh, I was offered an extension to stay on the soap, and I said, "No, no, no! I got this. I got it. Don't you guys know I'm going to run off and be Matt Damon if you heard?" <laughs> so you run off, and let's say when you leave the soap, your uh, total net worth is at X. Um, every month, X just drops and drops and drops, and you go on audition after audition, and it's you know hashtag pilot season and all that stuff, and you're you're auditioning. I mean, I auditioned for everything, man. I auditioned for. Um, the Superman movie, like the the Brandon Routh Superman movie that like came and went. I auditioned to be Superman. <laughs> I auditioned to be um, could have been Superman? Captain Kirk. Oh. oh yeah, sure. I remember the scene well. I mean, I remember all of that stuff. 
Captain Kirk in the Star Trek movies that went to Chris Pine. I auditioned for all of those. Um, I remember I remember when there was a moment when I said, I don't know if this is for me. And I went in and they, they rebooted Knight Rider for about five seconds. I think it lasted one episode, but it was a Knight Rider TV show. And I went in and it was the lead role. And I got a call back and I got another call back. And I'm like, this is it. This is, I'm almost out of money. I've been unemployed for a year. This is going to change. Everything. This is going to be the chapter in my book where Knight Rider brings it all back. And I didn't get the part. And it went to another soap opera guy. And I'm like, I think I'm going to go broke. I'm going to have to move home to Chicago. This is it. And I mean, this is like the most pathetic comeback with my tail between my legs and try to get my real estate license or something. And then one morning uh, I woke up, you know, at noon on a Tuesday and I went over to my Blackberry curve and I checked my email and there was an email out of the clouds from Jim Rome. And like, then that led me down the path of working for him. It was just, it was unbelievable. If that email doesn't come through, I, I don't, I don't know what would happen. Yeah, I mean, for, thinking that you were going to be Michael Knight too, uh, you know, you were going to be David Hasselhoff two point Like that's what you read for. You were going to be him. Yeah, and it's, it, I don't even know if it's online, but it was so bad. Like the car, there was a lot of controversy, but the car was, I think, a Mustang, and. I watched the and I think I might have lasted one episode or two. And uh, Michael Knight has a cameo, in it, and I think it's his son is the lead. Oh. And then, like in the last, I think, I think in the last scene of the show, I might have this wrong. The son goes and visits his father's grave, and he's standing there at like Michael Knight's tombstone. You know, it's like Don Corleone or some important figure. Michael Knight's tombstone, and he's talking to his dad. And then sure enough, up over his shoulder is the Hoff, and he's still alive. And he says, I had to stay, I had to stay quiet for your safety. I couldn't let anything happen to you. And the guy <laughs> cries. And like, it was, I think that's how the pilot went. And I had to read that scene in the audition. And, man, I put my heart and soul in about, like, all those years you weren't here for me. Why? Why? <laughs> so bad, man. And I didn't get it. Oh, God. Yeah. Just so the bad. idea of that. I mean, whether you got it or not, I, I kind of now want to – I want that pilot to get re- rebooted. I want to see it that. It needs to be. And, you know, and Hasselhoff is just dead serious in it, too. I mean, oh, he's I just imagine. chewing up scenery and just, like, committing it all tonight. Um, and I imagine, I'm sure, I know they made the movie. I'm sure at some point there'll be a Baywatch reboot. And if I was still living in the Valley somewhere in my, you know, $1,100 a month apartment, I would probably audition for it. But that, that, thank God I get the hell out of there. Well, the thing about Jim is you worked for Jim for – Gosh, nine years, ten years, yeah, right around yeah. there. Um, but how this, what you're doing right now, uh, what what caused you to leave Jim Show was Good Morning Football started up at NFL uh-huh. Network. They wanted to do a daily morning football show, and you know, you I, because of the contacts you had made with Jim, your name was out there. They contacted you to do it, but I might have my details wrong, so fill me in here. Right around the time you got hired to do. Good morning, football. Wasn't your wife like two weeks away from delivering your second child, and you had to pack up your life and move from Orange County to New York, and you were literally starting like in two weeks? Wasn't it something along those lines where your where life was totally hectic? I remember we texted during this time, and I was like, "Whoa, that's a yeah, pretty big." No, you're time. all over it. Okay, we um, it was July of 2016, and. I got the opportunity to move my family to New York City from Orange County and start a new show and be one of the hosts of this talk show, which is a crazy opportunity. But, like, yeah, we had a two-year-old son, and then my wife was, like, I don't know, like 38 weeks pregnant or something like that. And I remember we we had this whole talk 
and anybody who's ever had a baby can understand how insane this is. We're like, well, we kind of need to move right now, but then we can't move. And then you have the baby, you know, with a new doctor, a new hospital, or, you know, God forbid on the plane or something. So our pediatrician or our, I remember the name of the, our like baby doctor says, you know, the baby looks great. If you want, we can induce at 39 weeks. And so we decided to play God and dictate when our child would be born. So as to, inco- so as to better accommodate our move across the country, we show up with a 10, with a, we eventually moved when she was 11 days old. We show up with all our luggage at JFK. We look like we were on a Ellis Island or something standing there stranded. She's crying. The baby's crying. I'm crying. And um, somehow, thank God it worked. I remember so well, Steve, when I announced my, uh, on, the, on the Jim Rome show that I was leaving and Jim was super generous and gracious. And we did this whole dedication on the air. Yeah. Callers started calling in and, you know, most of them were like, hey, you know, good luck, whatever. Here's my memory. And then was it you or was it someone else? I don't even know if it was a known caller. Someone called in. It was like, yeah, KB, you know, you're great. You're obviously a really smart guy. It's a really good decision to uh, leave the uh, best seat in radio for a uh, 15-minute show on a third-tier network. That's a good idea, man. <laughs> well, I mean, and Jim laughed and I laughed. <laughs> Afton, he might have even been right, but somehow we're still alive. Yeah, I was going to say, because at that time, there had never been a daily football show, like at least a morning show. I mean, NFL Live has been on ESPN for a long time, but that's an afternoon show, yeah. and it's different. It's it's 30 minutes. Um, you guys, in the morning, to do, a, to do a morning show just centered around football in the heart of New York City where, you know um, – Good Morning America is going on, and the Today Show, and all that Today stuff. Today Show, yeah. I just, it's it's crazy to me, and yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people thought what that caller was thinking, like, I mean, good luck, but is this, what if it doesn't work out? You just packed up your whole life and your whole family to move there, but good on you guys, because you guys... Yeah, yeah. it was crazy. It was, it was like... Um... You know, it was like Jerry Cantrell says in Jerry Maguire. It's like, it's how you get ahead in life, man. You put your balls out there. We took a huge risk. Like, if that show had just flopped, which it easily could have, and many shows have before, we would have, I mean, I've been out of a job. I wouldn't have that much money. Like, what am I going to do? Go back to Jim and be like, hey, can I come back? And he, he, he would have moved on. It would have been awkward. It would have been terrible. I just, um, you know, they tried They tried in an LA, uh, an NFL Network morning show in LA, but like, it's to do a morning show based in LA. If you're going on the air, you know, you got to go on the air at like seven Eastern when people wake up. So that means you're going on four Pacific, which means you're getting into work at like one thirty in the morning or something. It doesn't even make sense. Yeah. So they had to move it to New York. Thank God for the sake of my marriage and family and brain and everything that they chose me. And it's somehow still as lungs or oxygen as lungs. Yeah. I mean, you and Kay Adams and Nate Burleson and Peter Schrager, like it's, it's a fun show. It's not just, Hey, let's dissect every X's and O's from every game coming up, and you know, on Mondays, like let's dissect every X and O from this past weekend. Like, I think people can get enough of that in other places. You guys bring a lot more fun to it, and the, the rapport between the four of you is way better than I ever thought it would be. Um, it's such a good show. Uh, I, I'm, I, Thanks, I'm, man. I'm glad that you guys have succeeded as long as you you have the NFL network gave you the opportunity and it's going as well as it has which has now led to you getting your own show which I want to talk about yeah which is the Kyle Brandt experience it's on NFL network it's on Friday nights and when I heard about this again I was like 
well, I'm glad Kyle got another gig, but I'm also like, okay, what kind of – we've seen enough football shows. Like, what is this going to be? And for anybody that hasn't seen it, I, you know, I think you need to tune in and watch this because this is so different than any other football show on television. Like, it's – I was thinking, oh, is this going to be another studio show with a sit-down yeah. interview? Like, no, we don't need that. There's enough of those. Um, so tell everybody about the Kyle Brandt experience. First of all, Steve, thank you. I'm glad the way you put that. Like that that's exactly it. Like we when we set off with this show, the creators and who are, you know, the more of pulling the strings than me. Had this conversation where I'm like, I would much rather make uh a, an original show that fails than a boring safe show that stays on the air. Like let's just I I don't know if it's if you if you love it, if you hate it, but we can all agree it's different. I did not want to just make another widget and do another sitting there in a suit and tie in the studio talking about you know these patriots how are they gonna get knocked off this year i just i, I couldn't do any more of that I, my heart wouldn't be in it it's yeah. like I, I was approached once about doing one of these like um access hollywood shows or extra and, and it those shows are probably really good money and really good lifestyle and i just i remember thinking like i can't earnestly show up to work and pretend like i'm excited about you know kylie's new fragrance i can't there's no way i could do that like i would be so depressed i can't talk about kendall's book or what i there's no way i could do it for maybe a week and then i'm like that's it so i couldn't do that for the football thing either they let it be me if anybody in sports fans listening remember back in the like late 80s early 90s the george michael sports machine oh for sure was this weird wonderful kooky show with this friendly orange man in a blazer literally pressing buttons and making tapes roll and playing highlights and i used to love that show as a kid and there's a lot of influence in 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 this show now and it's basically it's look it's friday it's six o'clock i in my opinion it's the best time of the week the work is over school's over like it's time to to have beer and pizza and get ready for football and it's fun it's literally set up in a control room like it's not on a set. It's yeah. it's like I'm I'm next to the graphics producer and the teleprompter guy and the lighting guy, and the the hedge is is that, and we're the only show really that has every play in NFL history ever that we can play. If you want to show any show can show you know Montana to Clark or uh, the Elway spinning play. If you want a random incompletion to Bam Morris on second down in 1995, I can bring it to you. Anything you want. So we get people coming in saying, hey. Hey, do you have this play? Yes, we do. Do you have this play? Yes, we do. So we punch buttons. It's kind of like the mad scientist laboratory. And then we look forward to the games this weekend. And it's fun, man. Well, the other thing that's so different about it is, you know, and you say like when you talked about soap opera people, how you're in their lives two or three hundred days a year with this show. Obviously, it's once a week and it's 30 minutes. However, you are so close to the camera. Like, I feel like you're sitting on my lap. <laughs> like, you are, you're right there. And it's almost like, I don't know if it's, you know, because I know you and I've spoken to you enough times to where I just, I actually like that aspect of it. I feel like it's not like, oh, here's a guy sitting on a set behind a desk and it's all, yeah. you know, makeuped out and it just, he seems so phony and he's just reading lines. Like, you are right there in, in our faces telling us about games you know, doing bits. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a lot of fun packed into 30 minutes. I mean, it's really Thanks, man. a good show. Like I've caught everyone. I watch it every week. Even if I don't watch it live, it's already set to my DVR record. Maybe I'll watch it 
uh, you know, Saturday morning uh, when game day gets boring or something. Um, yeah. It's it's just a really fun show to do. And, I mean, I don't know, is this something that – was it something when you got hired at Good Morning Football, was it ever a thought like, hey, we can spin off into something, or did this just kind of naturally, organically develop? No, I, I think far from it. I, I was the last man on board for Good Morning Football. I, I was lucky to be part part of that show man they um the short version of how that happened is they said well we love nate burleson there's our ex-player uh we love Kay adams there's our like our anchor type yeah and then you know peter strager is great and he's the journalist and we feel like we check all three boxes and that's that and they were, that was going to be the show just the three of them and i think it probably would have been really good and then for whatever reason i just had some champions within the network that said let's try this i know it it doesn't fit an archetype and he's not an ex-player and he's not a media member but he kind of brings his own perspective and his own energy. And I credit Rome and that world for a lot of that, you know, he's got takes and um, I think we need some of that. So I was the fourth guy in and a three person show. So they had no, I was lucky to hang on even on that show. And then thankfully with a few, you know, bits and thoughts that went, that went well in social media and developed kind of a following. They said, maybe we can do something with Kyle. It's basically, I've ranted and screamed about Rocky to the Eagles fans a few times, and I got my own show because of it. Yeah, I was going to say, that Rocky bit that happened, it was during the playoff run last year, kind of went viral. And it, is that kind of what led to the football experience show on Friday night? Like, yeah, I mean, in true in true Rocky form, it was like a montage. It was, it, it members or doesn't know, last, last January, the Eagles were the first time ever that they were as a number one seed in the playoffs that was a home underdog. And it was because their quarterback got hurt. Yeah. So I screamed for a few minutes up to Eagles fans about no one believes in you. And then they won. And then the next week I screamed in a different way. And then they won again. And then I screamed up the playoffs. And so it really felt like I was in a montage to like a Steve Perry song or something like that. And it just <laughs> kept working. I kept like, it was like you win in poker and they just keep re-upping and re-upping and re-upping and whatever, betting bigger and bigger. And I just kept cashing in and they win the Super Bowl and it, and uh, it just played really well for me. If you if you Google like Kyle Brand Eagles, there's all these. It wasn't even that original. I mean, how many, how dead tired are Rocky references and Revolutionary War comparisons for Philadelphia? It was so lame. But for, you know, if you tell Philadelphia, it's a very simple thing, Steve. If you find the right type of fan base in the right type of city, and you just say no one believes in you, they'll eat out of your hands. They love it. Yeah. And so you could just say it over and over. It's it's that's how I ended up. Uh, getting a rose, if you will, from the network. Yeah, well, it's, it's almost like in wrestling. It was like a cheap pop. Like you're in you're in Uniondale, New York, and you say, "Hey, everybody, the good fans of Uniondale," and then it pops for them. Like you, That's all you, you need. Yeah, you knew what buttons to press, and it worked. And the fact that the Eagles kept winning I, I, certainly it was helped, <laughs> Certainly helped everything. And you know, here you are now with two shows. Did you go to them and say, "I want to do something," or did they come to you and say? Hey, I think we can spin off and give you a little something. Was it something yeah, you they came to me. Um, they came to me. And Michael Davies, who runs a company called NBC Row, who oversees Good Morning Football, is this, this brilliant man. He's done a million shows in the past, and he brought Who Wants to Be a Millionaire to the U.S. back in the '90s. He's done a bunch of stuff. He wanted to do, as did I. I wanted to do like the Kyle Brandt sports machine or football machine, just like the George Michael thing, which is in essence a highlight show on Sunday night or Monday. So that was going to be the show and it was going to be all retro and, you know, retro's back and this show's back and we had graphics and music that was retro and 
then the network said, well, that's great, but we, our time slot for you is on Friday. So that doesn't work at all. We can't do a recap show on Friday. So then we had to overhaul the whole thing. And thankfully, we kept a lot of the vintage graphics and music and everything. And like the whole, the, the, one of my favorite things about the show by far is the title sequence. It's like, yeah. I went and looked back at all of these old things from 91 and 89. And there was a period, I remember, when you couldn't watch a football game if the opening title sequence didn't have two animated helmets bashing into each other and exploding, yeah. you know? And there was a lot of, like, floating satellites sending a signal down to Earth to beam the game. So we got a satellite in my open, and we have, like, pink lightning and this super triumphant, like, uh, score that you would usually end with, I don't know, Dick Enberg or Jim Lampley or one of those guys. And I, I was very hands-on with all of that. Like, they submitted different scores and different graphs. I'm like, no, this this is the one. This is the one for the, you know, the Minnesota Twins World Series. This was the score when they won it that year. And I would send samples to them, and then they made it. It was really cool. Well, it was kind of like the beginning of Rocky Four with the American glove and the Russian glove smashing totally. into each other. Yes! Yeah. Yes! Well, speaking of Rocky Four, uh, well, Creed Two yeah. comes out this week, but... Getting back to early 80s, because you and I both have the same liking for mid-80s nostalgia, especially when it comes to yeah. our Karate Kid was something that was huge growing up. So I have to ask you this, because I did the podcast with Stu. Uh, we did a Karate Kid like kind of recap thing or whatever. Okay. You've seen all three Karate Kids, right? Well, I mean, you're saying three. That means you're not counting the Jaden Smith, no, which I'm offended not, by. No, count, I'm not <laughs> counting the Hillary Swank one, uh, and okay, I'm not so counting the Yeah, Smith. I've seen all three, of course. Okay. I'm curious to what, what your take on this is and who would win in a fight between Johnny Lawrence, Chosen, or Mike Barnes. Your three top villains in the first three Karate Kid movies. Who's your winner in that? All right. Lawrence is definitely last. Um, <laughs> Lawrence, is, Lawrence is the fake tough guy, glass jaw, and mentally weak. Not only in the sense that he's a bully, so you know he's weak, but we just sat through, Steve. I don't know what it is, an hour, 45 minutes of him being a complete ass. He takes one glancing crane kick, and 12 seconds later, it's, you're all right, LaRusso. Shut the F up, Lawrence. I'll tell you when I'm all right. Like, get out of my face with that. What What a complete – I don't even know what your rules are about profanity, but what a complete puss. Um, oh, yeah. The guy who made a big impression on me is Barnes. Oh, yeah. A big impression because – Former he soap opera like guy. Big soap. 100%. He played Deacon on The Bold and the Beautiful. Sean Kanan. Oh, yeah. Yes. Big that soap opera guy. That guy was on, uh, and as far as I understand, was generally into martial arts. I've never met him, but I used to, and I'm not joking, I used to, like, be an audition. And I remember seeing him on The Bold and the Beautiful. I was like, oh, dude, dude that's Terry Silver's greatest people right there. <laughs> I love that guy. So yeah. Barnes, to me, was like, you know how in the Terminator movies, like, It'll go from the Schwarzenegger one to, like, the Robert Patrick one that's, like, the step up. Like, if you took Lawrence and took him, like, into Skynet and be like, we need more weaponry and we need better armor, they would kick out Barnes. And he would give him a spike haircut other than a feathered blow dry. And I never – I, I believe that LaRusso could beat Lawrence at the end. I never really bought him in any way beating Barnes. Um well, because so he didn't. He got his ass kicked for three minutes, and he won on a stupid move in overtime. So, yeah. Right, and Barnes does the, like, he punches to get pe to points penalized. Yeah. And Terry Silver says, I want you to punish him. So, obviously, he's getting his ass kicked, and then he gets one lucky thing. So, to your point, 
Yeah, it's like um, a golfer who just wants to keep the game close, and then the guy hits a hole in one on 18 and he loses. It's basically <laughs> like that. So yeah. Barnes, I think, in a blowout. Yeah, and I think I think that was the uh, – I mean, I was always – Barnes is one, Chosen is two, and Lawrence is a distant, distant third. I don't think it's. A, I don't think. I, don't I think honestly it's think like it, I, I actually think that like Elizabeth Shue could have beaten Lawrence in the first one because I always love the shot of it that after after Larusso puts Lawrence to sleep, he's overwhelmed and exhausted, and Shue comes with like a head of steam. Oh, and like, like middle linebacker him almost, yeah. and. Clearly, Elizabeth Shue is a bigger person than Ralph Macho in that shoot. Like, she had matured and she had a puberty, and Macho is like 130 pounds. She looks like she's going to snap him over her knee in that. So, like, Shue to me, that shoe was on the other foot, Steve. I'm telling you, that was a different deal. And everybody loves Liz Shue. I think she could have taken all of them in that movie. Oh, gosh. And the fact that we even uh, did you watch Cobra Kai? Did you watch no, it? No, I never watched I did not see it. You know what? For someone who. Uh, loves Karate Kid as much as you do and, and I did, it's actually a lot better than you probably think it would be. It's, I heard it was good. Yeah, it was really entertaining. It was really good. There were a lot of throwbacks uh, to the to all three movies, actually. All three movies there are throwbacks to, which keeps And, the, like, Zabka and Macho, like, they look good, right? Yeah. Like, they got their, their act together. Yeah, and, it's, and the storyline makes sense. It's not like, I mean, yeah, it's 30 years later, but there's there's continuity to it as to why they are where they are in life now and Macho's the one whose life is all cush and he's a car salesman he's married with two kids and Zabka's down on his luck because of that loss 30 years ago it's a yeah. little far-fetched that he couldn't get over it but I mean it's it's actually a really good show and I think the nostalgia factor you'll like um because they do do a lot of throwbacks to the first one and but were uh, you gonna say that Elizabeth Shue's not part of it she's not in it She's not in it, but there is a conversation that takes place where they reference everything that went on in one. So yeah, okay. between Machio and Zabka, they're at the bar and talking about what happened with Ali with an eye. You know, so it's like I love the I love the fact that they they kept it to their hardcore fans. Like they would not lead us astray and just be like, oh, we're not going to mention the first movie. I mean, it is it is it is. A lot better than you probably thought. I think it's all right. It it is, it is a, and I I know this has come up. It is a little weird that Miyagi beats the crap out of some high school kids. I mean, it's clearly, I mean, as an adult in that situation, certainly step in. You you de escalate, right? You say, enough, boys, break it up. You don't start kicking them in the face. Like, those kids are like 16 years old, and Miyagi. You, like I think he would have gone to jail for that. Maybe you can't do that. Like I always, that always bothered me. And then I know people talk about it. And I went back and rewatched, and I was like, "Yeah, this this is excessive. Like no adult would do that. And if they did, you know, they'd be on like Shepard Smith getting torn to pieces about like you know a martial arts instructor and maintenance man beats up teenagers. It, it is wrong. Oh, there's so many things about that movie that are unintentionally funny. Um, and I think. Stu and Brian Beckner and I pointed it all out in that podcast that we did, but yeah, no, it's, um, it's an interesting movie to say the least, but it's, it's part of where, you know, I went to that golf and stuff. It was 15 minutes from where I grew up. So all that stuff is like, so into me and so part of my childhood that, you know, literally as I watched that movie as a fifth and sixth grader, I'm like, I want to be the karate kid when I got to high school. And I thought, thought that's how my life was going to be. Um, 
I, I, one quick fact about Karate Kid, as you were talking about it, and you're talking about yeah. Miyagi beating up the kids. Did you know who played Miyagi's stunt double in those scenes where he beat up them in uh, skeleton outfits? Jackie Chan? No. It was the guy. Oh. It was the guy who lost to Lawrence in the semifinals. Vidal, the oh, guy, really? the guy that did all the flips. Yeah, he he was like they put a wig on him and gave him a little balding in the front. He was the one who played Miyagi when you saw him from the back kicking skeleton guys' asses. Yeah, that was are him. you telling me that Marita did not perform his own stunts? Yeah, unfortunately, I'd have to break <laughs> break that to you. Are you going to tell me next that Rodney Dangerfield did not do the triple Lindy himself? <laughs> Because don't even do that. I'll hang up. Yeah, I know. Like, uh, unfortunately, I don't think that was Rodney. Um, How dare you? Yeah. Um, but anyway, Kyle, uh, I know you got. I know you got to run. Thanks so much uh, for doing this. Uh, I, I I will say that um, you know, having been in that industry and knowing that there's a lot of jerk offs and self absorbed people in that industry, you, you're not one of them. Um, I'm so happy for your success, man. I think it's great. Uh, I love seeing you take off the way you have. And uh, I mean, thanks for coming on talking bachelor, talking real world and all that. And uh, I think my listeners are going to love this. This is a lot of fun. First of all, Steve, I am one of them, but thank you for saying I'm not. And thank you. And this is very cool the way you talked about it. And you came on and jumped on the Jim Rome show once with me when they wrote that huge profile about you and what a naughty, naughty boy you are with those ABC people. So I would have always done it, man. And, uh, you and I have both had some pretty weird careers, man, but uh, it's awesome to talk with you anytime, dude. Oh, thanks a lot, man, and good luck with everything, and we'll be talking in the future. You got it, man. Thanks. Bye. Uh, thank you to Kyle for that. Um, like I said, a little bit different. Did have a reality TV uh, taste to it because he was on The Real World, but uh, a friend of mine, uh, a guy that I'm very happy for, his success, and what he's been able to do with himself from being a producer on a radio show that I – worked on back in the late nineties and to do that and to move on and just the story of, you know, packing up your life and having a pregnant wife who's ready to deliver and being told, Hey, we're going to start a new show, a morning football show out of New York. And it's going to be on every morning, five days a week, something that's never really been tried or succeeded. And, and he agreed to do it. And here they are, you know, almost three years later, Still doing the show. You can see him on Good Morning Football uh, every morning on NFL Network. And then Friday nights, his show, The Kyle Brand Experience, which is a lot of fun uh, for sports fans like myself. And even if you're not a sports fan, he gets so many pop culture references in there. That's why I loved talking to him about old 90210 stuff, some good Karate Kid stuff. Um, So, yeah, uh, Kyle, uh, a good friend. The funny thing is, I've never met Kyle. Kyle and I have never met in person. Um, but we've talked and texted numerous times and it's just one of those things where him and I will always, you know, be connected to the Jim Rome show. But, um, you know, I, I like seeing good people do well in the industry and he's just a good guy and, um, good on him. And I'm, and I'm happy for all his success and I'm glad he came on and did this podcast a little fun for you before your Thanksgiving Turkey tomorrow afternoon. So thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. Thanks. You guys have made this uh, podcast a lot of fun for the last year and a half, and we're just going to keep going. Um, This was podcast number 105. Don't know who's on next week, but um, I I hope you enjoy it, whoever it is. I'll figure it out over the next uh, few days and and get someone on. We we are going to have on some Survivor talk uh, in the the next few weeks. I just don't know which week it's uh, going to be. So thanks again big time to Kyle Brandt for coming on. A lot of fun. 
Hope you all enjoyed it. Have a great Thanksgiving, everybody, and we will talk to you next week. See you.